the telegraph and your Okay. Everything must be done as an instant, and you're striking on me. Centuries have passed since this countryside echoed to the clash of sword blades. If I'm going to be there, yeah? Your headshot's coming in on me. Spring 2009, Folksrath Castle in Kilkenny, a place that is haunted. Now, now, you want to catch it on the next shot. The castle ghost is a young girl who perished in its tower. Today, another girl moves in the courtyard, but this one is a fighter instructed by master swordsman Pete O'Connor. Today, the clans come together to reenact ancient battles. I've met Pete once before at a stag party some 35 years ago. Back then he was an 18-stone biker, a man you would not like to meet on a dark night. There are many layers to Pete's identity. He has morphed from the biker known as Fat Pete into Father of Oak, clan leader of a band of warriors known as Tuanagail. He is a member of the Swordsman's Guild of Ireland and the Company of the Black Shield. Some say he may even be the last High King of Ireland. Peter, look marvellous. I'm feeling good now, you know, kitted out anyway. At the moment I'm wearing uh, Viking medieval boots with the leg wraps, trousers, the split trousers with the, the jockey in the front and two tunics, uh, bottle greaves, with uh, knuckle protectors, wrist protectors, and second sword on my belt, a uh, replacement sword in case anything goes amiss. And basically, I'm ready to do most battles. The only thing I haven't got with me at, my mo- at the moment is my shield. One sword is what they call a Viking three knuckle. The three knuckles, a uh, Viking sword, and the other is a Jamondu sword. It's a single edged Jamondu blade. Very fast. You know. <laughs> How do you mean fast? Fast, and when you're using it, she's fast. She feels fast in your hand, and it'll get you a lot closer to your opponent, a lot quicker than like a heavy duty Viking sword would. You know what I mean? So from that, you can actually get in close to the person when they're not expecting you to get close to them, because they're so used to fighting you with what what they call a 36-inch blade going to a 28-inch blade. And Pete, um, do you feel nervous now before you're going to fight? No, I'm I'm willing to take on 10 or 11 people now at the moment, the way I feel. I've had a good journey down on the bike and I arrived here and it's taken me 15 minutes to get ready. As I said, it's a panic to get ready, but when you're ready, you feel comfortable. And we just hang about now and wait for the lads just to muster and we'll have a bit of a clash with swords, axes, spears or whatever. Well, you're not. You're like myself. You're not in the first flush of youth. So, do, do you feel fit enough to be doing this sort of stuff? I'm 62 years of age, and I will not stop. I'll stop all right when they put me in a box, and then I don't want to go in a box. I want to be cremated and buried on the hill of Tara. My ashes spread on the hill of Tara. I don't know what. Flowing it white locks, like a, thing, a beard, and sovereign bearing give Pete a regal appearance. Short in stature, he is a powerhouse of strength. For a man in his 60s. The swordmaster is nimble, the heavy blade a blur of speed in his fist. 
Some men are born great, but others, like Pete O'Connor, have greatness thrust upon them. Uh, I was originally, uh, my mother and father, my mother came from Eden, and from Edenderry. She was an awfully woman, and my father was a Dublin man, a sergeant in the Curra. And he used to travel to Edenderry for the dance, and he met my mother, who was from, Eden, from Edenderry, and... They ended up getting married, and my father, his his father had been a docker all his life. Uh, he was one of the old, what we called button men at that particular time. It was basically the, one of the first people who did be picked to do a bit of work because of his stature, he was a, a big man. And Myself came along then in 1945. I was a bit of a war baby, as he would say. Um, I was born in April of 45, and my mother at that time and my father lived in Queen Street and after a wee while living in Queen Street like um, I was diagnosed in hospital as having a heart murmur so my me, me, me mother and father moved out to Cabra West at that particular time and in Cabra West there wasn't many houses in 1950s there wasn't many houses in Cabra West but you were nearly one of the first people to actually move into Carnock Road and ever since then, like I went to St. Finbar School, um, the only thing that I failed on was my Irish, which seemed to be a pretty strange thing, which kicked back on me in later life, that I wasn't really good at my Irish. But um, I'm a prominent good welder by trade now. So the first bike I ever bought was a Pooch 50cc. And the first big bike I ever bought was a Triumph 350. The bikers scene like was getting big and tattoos became a sort of a, a carry on from the bikes but I knew there was always something extra out there for me. In so, the stairwell in Ballyfermot an alarm sensor periodically interrupts to remind us we are in the present tense and not in a time of holy wells when miracles still happened and heroes walked the land. I am the last uh, man to be inaugurated king or queen sorry chief of the clans of Ireland and I deem it my responsibility that nobody can lay claim to what are what what you don't know about because as I said an American is an American an Irishman is a Celt that's, that's the way it is with me Who was the last clan leader as far as you know? Uh, the last clan leader, I think, we would be Conor McNess. What year would that have been? He, he would have been 16, about the 15th, 16th century. And it fell out, he fell out of favour with the English, of course, uh, because the clansmen weren't recognised in Ireland as, as clansmen. We were classed as... Um, Visicots or um, whatever the case may be, we were basically, uh, basically outcast. And uh, so when the opportunity came for me to actually reunite the clans in Ireland, I took it and I got approval from my peers. That's the only way I can put it, is that I got approval from my peers. 
And to this day, I have never looked back. I've never made an enemy. And I hope never to make another enemy. Because I deem it. I'm only doing what I see is right. For the good of Ireland. Back at the castle, in a lull before battle, we catch up again with Pete. Uh, you must have looked great coming down, you know, with, with your sword strapped on the back of the bike. They weren't on the back, they were on my back, across my bike, on the bike, you know what I mean? And a, a guard car overtook me coming down, but they actually slowed down, and I could see the two of them, like, giving it the eye at that, like, you know, what's that on his back? And look, in my side, you can, as you see, me panniers there, just two axe heads, or two axes. So, like, that gave them a, gave them a good eyeful anyway. It cheered them up no end, you know. Outlaw bikers are to the law as oil is to water. And I suspect this may not be the first time Pete has fallen under guard of scrutiny. Every warrior values his weapons, none more so than Pete. The, the uh, Vikings preferred uh, what they call the bearded axe because it was lighter. There wasn't as much metal in it, yeah? And it just made it a very fast weapon to use. Plus the fact that if you're fighting anybody, that you could hook onto their arm, which would lock in there, then they twist it, and it would actually arm, act as an arm break. You know what I mean? Uh, the idea that the bearded end of it was that when you struck, all the power was in that little edge there, and that's what done most of the damage. If you hit with the flat, it wasn't too bad. Like, as you say, not too bad, but you get hit with the edge of it. You know yourself, if you bump your, your elbow off at the corner of a table, you scream like a stuck pig. But that's it, you know. That's uh, the Viking axe, you know what I mean? Like, that's more or less a slashing weapon. That's a power weapon for hitting hard as, as you can. Uh, that's what they call a medieval axe. You know what I mean? So that would be good enough. That would be the same model of the axe there that done the taking heads off people the same style of axe. You see, it's higher on the top for the simple reason that when you're cutting down, the cut continues. The cut doesn't continue up this end. The cut continues that way. So it actually acts as a slashing weapon. Yeah? I've been doing this since 1983, and, like, over the years, I've just learned what I needed to learn, and now I've learned so much now that the people here deem like that it would be the ideal people to train them because of my experience of all the battles that I've been to and taken part in. Uh, plus, I've done a few movies as well, the likes of Braveheart and Running with the Deer, Into the West, The Van, little things like that. And the last film I've done was Arthur, the King Arthur movie. So, like, it's all experience. And you see a lot of um, what they call pulled shots and stuff like that. And what I do is I intend to bring those here so people... The shot would look fabulous. It would actually look like a blood-calling shot. Like a guy coming with, you say, a headshot, and you drop your knee and you cut his sword across his stomach, and you he lets out a wrench and, oh! The audience going, ooh, you know what I mean? It's, we did have a program one time now, it was done in jest, that we actually brought along a false mannequin head and filled it with blood, and it was in one of the lads' bags and during the battle. And uh, blah, blah. So the idea was that you took your prisoner, 
So I said, I don't want no prisoners. And I bent down over him and whacked at his head. You know, it wasn't his head, just whacked at the ground and bent down him and sort of letting on to be cutting away. Stood up at the head, dripping with blood and a couple of kids fainted. <laughs> so like things like that, like, you know, I mean, can be really visual for kids. Go, oh, my God, he's killed him, you know what I mean? What concerns me about that one is the fact that there's notches on the handle. Yeah, well, they were killed. <laughs> All uh, medieval axes, uh, even on their bows, like the, or their, their sword handles, they always had some sort of little group that represent either a kill or a battle that he attended or what part he took part in it, you know what I mean? It's just a reminder of, it's like as you, you were making a comment the other day about ta- people's tattoos. Like I've tattoos from all over the world. Like I've got some from Spain, I've got some from America. I've got more, more tattoos that my son done. But each of them tells their own little story to me when people ask about like, oh, where'd you get that one? I got that in uh, California last year or the year before, whatever the case may be. Or I was down in Waterford and I happened to bump into a tattoo and he says, I'd like to put something on your arm. Because I know so many tattooists that when I, whenever I go visit us, sit down, Pete, do you want to get something done? Or said, no, thanks, I have enough because I have a full body kit. You know what I mean? So that's the way I do things, you know what I mean? a century of biking, Pete has covered hundreds of thousands of miles. Affiliated with several biker families, you know that the fist wielding the sword hilt can also rip open a throttle. But the years have mellowed this warrior. Today I find him at his son's tattoo parlour in Ballyfermot. We're in a tattoo shop called Crazy Cats. That's been opened up over three years ago and the place is just after kicking off. Now, we're, since we opened up the place, I've been very busy, but I won an international award for tattooing. The fascination with sharp blades has been passed on to Pete's son, Eddie. He is a tattoo artist, warrior and clan member. His rite of passage is straight from the pages of a boy's own adventure tale. And you seem to have a lot of weapons on the wall here. Can you describe them for me? Well, the, the, the force, the force the, the, at the top is a, around the 14th century musket. The... My dad gave me this one here. It's a, it's a Scottish derrick from obviously from Scotland, you know I mean? from around around the 14th century. Do you know what I mean? That's it's all described with uh, this other stuff. This is a Col 45. This is a flintlock blade. With it. it has a, a flint on it, like a musket, also a knife. This is from Turkey, and I got this one from Moscow just because I like the blade. This is a rapier. That's the only reason why I bought this is I just like the I just like the scabbard off it and I just like the hilt off it. Just like the hilt off it. I probably went change and put something else in the bed. Well, what about that odd-looking knife down there? That's, that I, I, I actually took this one off a fellow that tried to rob me a few years ago. I was, I was walking in another tattoo shop and he came in and I seen him walking in behind me. But wherever I turned, he was taking it out with plastic bags, so I got a chance to grab it out of his hands and then show me before before and a bit of a scuffle started. But it was, so I kept the knife as a trophy. <laughs> and when did you first become interested in weapons? Well, it was, it was about 12, 13. On the day we talked, well, I was in a clan called uh, the Dalrida at the start. Do you know what I mean? There was uh, a, couple of very, a couple of very good lads now. Do you know what I mean? That started, that started up. 
and um, we sat my father was there now from the very first day when the clan started up. That's on the day of my thirteenth birthday, I was over in Affestoik and I was I was only thirteen, you weren't gonna let me fight because you know, I looked so young. And my dad my father put me into a into a ring and there was a all Saxons there and the Saxons full full chain mail, the whole lot, do you know what I mean? And then um, he said, Look at he goes, right, you fight them so I had a nine foot spear, so I, I, I killed about three or four of them, and they all went right fair enough that, that he can fight then in the battle. So today we talked in party, and I got, I got to kill myself many Saxons, I became a man. And my dad got me out there, when I got home, my dad actually got me this tattoo. It's the three circles of, of Newgrange, because I was after coming a man over there, and uh, for killing Saxons. And, uh, that, that, and that's how I started getting into the tattooing, and the weaponry and stuff like that, you know what I mean? They were kind of walked off together. Have you another customer here now? Is that what you're... Yeah. <laughs> so another big piece. I'll, I'll get out of your way for the moment. No problem, no problem. Okay, that's good. So, Pete, you must be very proud of him. Oh, big, in a big time, big way, you know what I mean? Like, it just shows, like, what you make it yourself, if you put the effort in, like, you know what I mean? And... I am. I'm really proud of him. Like you know, I mean, and uh, the younger son Daniel there. He's training to be a tattooist as well, and he's serving his time already. And you have a few interesting examples of tattoos on yourself. Do you, can you describe them? I've quite a few. Yeah. Well, it's uh, what they call uh, an arm piece, a full arm piece, where there's no gaps. It's just a complete tattoo from the wrist right up to the shoulder, and continues across my chest onto the other arm. And I have some tattoos on my back as well, uh, hoping to get more in the ne- very near future. Um, they're just lovely to have, you know what I mean? It just makes you different from everybody else. And it, they say, if you want to get noticed, get a tattoo. <laughs> when did you get your first tattoo? I got my first tattoo done back in, I would say, the early 70s. Uh, Johnny Eagle used to have um, a place in Gardner Street at that particular time. We're going back to the early 70s and I got my first tattoo there and ever since then it just became sort of keep adding on, keep adding on and that's all I've ever done ever since. What was the first one? The first one was, uh, was basically a portrait of my dad. It was the devil's head with my dad wrote over it. It was done as a joke for my dad and on the other side and I had my mother uh, just mum I remember a heart and a knife gone through the heart. That was it, my two pretty first tattoos. <laughs> what was the last one you've had done? The last one I had done was the piece done on my chest. It's a, a big skull. So if you want to describe yourself, you know, you can sort of, you know. Yeah, describe that for me. Well, a big scream and skull. How would you describe it? A big scream and skull with a biomechanical... Uh, stuff all around it, you know. So, <laughs> and you have some on your ears. Yeah, and on my neck as well. <laughs> What's the one on your neck? You describe that one for me. It's a screaming skull. It's a biker's traditional tattoo. So, which also reminds me that I will remind you that I'm also a biker as well. I love the old bikes. My preference is uh, three-wheel motorcycles, like trikes, uh, choppers, old-school motorcycles, Triumphs, BSA, Nortons. They're about my favourite, you know. 
And that would be it, you know Back in the 1970s, Pete broke bikes for a living. He loves the smell of waste oil. On a Wednesday morning, we find ourselves in a breaker's yard at the back of Dublin Airport, where our warrior looks for spare parts from his old pal, Hugh. I just want to have a smoke before I do anything. <laughs> so, Pete, you're building a trike, are you? Um, I'm in the process of building a trike at the moment. The only thing I'm waiting for now is the engine. I have the steel, wheels, forks, hoping that Huey can set me up now with a set of uh, shock suspensions. And uh, he's got a front end there, a set of forks with a wheel, which I might be interested in. So i give him a couple of minutes because he's had that opening. And I'll give him a few minutes to get his head together and I'll have a smoke while I'm waiting. And then I'll go in and have a look. Mind you're going to have to do some climbing over the old frames and bikes like that. Thank God for places like this, you know what I mean? That without them are lost, you know? In pagan times, a warrior's hope of eternity was that his acts of bravery would live on in the sagas. When old bikers get together, they too relive the past and remember the fallen. And then we had um, Jerry, who became a solicitor, was it Jerry? Uh, better not give a second name. You mightn't want. No, no. Jerry, no but, <laughs> oh no, I don't know yeah. who you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then we had like the likes of Peter. God bless him. Yeah, like, you know yeah Peter. Mean? Peter Stewart. Ah, yeah, yeah, he Peter, was yeah. killed off a motorcycle and yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, but we got to know everybody's then. Like you know, oh, yeah, all the yeah. we had the different clubs coming towards at that time. Like the yeah. Devil's Disciples and yeah. the. the a couple of lads from the freewheelers coming up from yeah. all the way from Waterworth just to get spare bits and pieces for yeah. Triumphs, BSAs, yeah. Nortons. That's it, yeah. It was the old school choppers then, like, That's you know it, what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. You, you wouldn't get a nut or a bolt now for a Triumph or a BSA or an Norton. No, wouldn't. not unless you want to pay through the nose. No, well, one, you, you know even if you did pay through the nose, you still wouldn't get it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, someday I'm into Remember the guy? Uh, what was his name? Huge big guy, and he had a bad smack... Uh, Jambo. Jambo. Yeah, well, Jambo is, is out in Dunleary Hospital. Well, he, I knew he was in hospital. Yeah, he, he came off the bike down 35 miles an hour. And what happened to him was his brain actually spun inside of the skull. Yeah. He sat up. The ambulance man came, asked him, was he okay? He said, yeah. And two, three seconds later, he just fell backwards onto the the, 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 the gurney. And... Uh, Ever since then, he's been... He's still alive, is he? He's still alive, but yeah. he doesn't know his own name. And that's about 28 years ago, 29 years ago. Yeah. Uh, just a silly accident, and there we go, like, you know. Yeah. Chap's still alive. His mother and father passed on, and most of his family, like, you know, he's, he, do, yeah. uh, he doesn't know what's happening with the family, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. If he's to wake up tomorrow, he'd, he'd still think it was the day of the accident. Yeah, yeah. That's what the doctor said anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the fairly strange yeah. thing about that was it was the, the weekend of the TT's racing and Robert Galbraith at the time had offered to fly over and bring a neurosurgeon from the TT races. Did he, yeah, yeah. To Jambo uh, yeah, in the yeah, hospital. Yeah. And didn't the plane run off the end of the highway? Or off the runway. Are you serious? And I never heard that. There was two people killed, yeah. and one of them was the neurosurgeon, which could have fixed Jam Jambo at that particular ah, time. Geez, I never, no, I never knew. Jimmy that. Logan, you know what I mean? Well, 
A half hour later, the memory of the damaged and the fallen has been honoured. I meet Pete later in Ballyfermot. Biking and being a clansman are basically almost, in a way, almost identical to each other because the camaraderie, the camaraderie of bikers meeting up and going to a show is basically the same thing as what the Celts is doing. It's to show off their wares, to show off what they can do with their bit of engineering, with their paint jobs. It was the same for the biking, the Saxons, the Celts. They came along with the best sword. They came along with the best shield. The nice helmets. Tell me, like, that today still stands as being a biker. Like, you have a nice bike, you have a nice helmet, you have a beautiful paint job. Uh, the difference may be in the garb of changing from chain mail to leather. But even as, as leather, like, the Celts use leather. Modern day bikers use leather. The Celts use... Boots, leather boots, the bikers use leather boots. It's just, you do have presidents of bike clubs. You have other people who join in and become a member of that bike club. It is the exact same thing with a clansman. He becomes a member of a clan. He also, he's, he's actually buying into a family, just as much as a biker is buying into a family. Uh, they go off for weekends. They camp out, they have great crack, they meet up with other bikers from different countries, they meet up at uh, bike shows. It's the exact same with the, the Celts. What they done is they went visit towns, showing off what shields you could make, how they painted their shields, how they painted their bodies in mould, which today we look upon tattoos as being a Celtic carryover from the Celts to the modern day tattooist. When I was growing up, stories abounded about packs of marauding bikers arriving unannounced into small midland towns and tearing up sleepy Sunday afternoons, leaving only the smell of oily exhaust and fear in their wake. Nothing much has changed. Pete and all his family of clan warriors are back in town. The smell of chain mail, wood smoke and battle lust hangs in the air. Today there are traders here whose accents would not be out of place amongst the Anglo-Saxon. I want to make stuff like that in sheepskin, just to keep your ears warm. Something that looks like that and makes out of that, just wet it on your head with your coat. Yeah. Make it big and fluffy. Because Mary's going to help me get... I want to make it so that you get one bit of skin and you put your template down, mm -hmm. cut it up, yep. then sew it up in one go. That is a lovely helmet. The clans of Ireland arrive at the castle for this weekend of battle. Their presence forms a gateway between two worlds. Whilst each clan has their own leader, all warriors have a visible respect for the head of the Tuanuel clan, Pete. You get a child whose face lights up and is that excited about, you know, who we 
and who we are is who we were. I, you know, that's how I see things. I actually say, well, if, if you can, you, if you want to understand yourself, you want to understand who we come from, who the people we come from. I come from an island people, off Baytori. I trace my ancestors back ten generations back. Uh, we have a you know huge family tree and structure, but all of those things possibly led me to reenactment as being part of you know um, who I am. And then you meet the right people and you say, yeah, this is you know this is the family you choose. You you have to trust people to a huge degree if you're going to be out in the battlefield whacking one another with you know metal objects. <laughs> you could say serious weaponry, but you know. It really comes down to degrees of trust and degrees of um, mutual respect. I find that in reenactment. Maybe it's because they get all their aggression off in the battlefield, but they're the nicest bunch of people I've ever come across. So This very elegant gown that I'm wearing is a gown from around the period of 1415. And as in most medieval clothing, there are several layers that you have to wear. So my first initial layer is a, a linen underdress or a kirtle, as it was sometimes called. Then I'm wearing a petticoat that is lined with um, with kind of batted wool, so it's quite warm, and then the gown itself on top of that. Uh, people believed in layers, obviously. It was quite cold at certain times, and they had uh, very strict ideas of modesty, what was considered modest and what was considered immodest. So it was quite important to be within the realms of modesty. You could be tried as a witch or God knows what if you didn't, if you didn't adhere to the rules of society at the time. A female warrior bends to tend the barbecue fire. The breeze sends up a scarf of smoke that connects us with the sky. For a moment, Pete's regal demeanour slips and he becomes playful. This is highly appropriate. I I was asking Pete if if there's um, if there's any romance that occurs on weekends like this. Oh, absolutely. There's plenty of couples again, like-minded couples who get involved in this sport and um, in a muddy field somewhere with plenty of battle bruises and a meat horn and and a fireside. And um, there are many romances and, and, and happy, you know, partnerships and weddings and uh, hand fastings and festivities that uh, are part of the whole reenactment scene. Today's events are charged with atmosphere. This spirituality has directed Pete's path through life. Being made clan leader must have been a very important thing in your life. It was in the way that I, di- I didn't know was happening. Like, the clan had, had a gathering and... It was deemed as like part of the ritual for everybody to attend the gathering. And I was the last one to arrive in the tower to be on, on the hill of Tara for the simple reason uh, my brother-in-law took me the long way around. Um, what I didn't know was that he had prepared everything on the hill of Tara for me, which I didn't know anything about. They formed a circle, a circle of truth, that if anybody had anything to say against myself being made chief of the clan, this was the time to speak or whatever, hold a piece, the usual. And from that then, I was proceeded to be made chief of the clan, the Tua, called Tua which is the people of the Gaels. All the celebrations started. Everybody was out to have a good evening. Everybody had brought along a few bottles of mead, 
a few bottles of beer, whatever the case may be, whatever their, their pleasure was. Um, sitting down, I went, sitting around the campfire, went late in the evening. Young Eric was made my bodyguard on the same day. And he should have been sitting on my right hand, as all bodyguards do. But um, I looked around to where's Eric. And looking over at the wee hill, I could see Eric, but he was talking to two very tall men with a hound. And I sent my son, Edward, my son, Petey, and a couple of other warriors over to check to make sure that everything was okay. Eric was on the hill on his own, and he was asked by my son who was the people he was with. And he said, nobody. And we looked around, couldn't see anybody. And the hairs on the back of our neck began to stand up. And from that then, we went back to the campfire and we looked back and here's these eight or nine people, all about ten feet tall, standing by hounds, looking at us. So we went back over again and there was nobody on the mound. But not many people slept that night because the, the hairs were standing on the back of their head. And from that then, the next morning we woke up, there wasn't a bird, a cow, a sheep or anything to be seen. So the last dressing of being made chief of the clans of Ireland was to receive um, a fully embroidered stitched lena with all the Celtic knotwork. And that was probably on the morning up on the, the Leofal. And as they put the, the, the robes on, it was very strange that all the boards, cows, horses even showed up, all around the fencing, as if they were looking to see what was going on. And it was just one fabulous day. From that, like, I've been cheap up to two and nobody has ever laid claim to do the same. No other chief has ever been elected on the Hill of Tarla except myself. And as far as we know, like, the last chief of any clan in Ireland was Conor McNessa, who was the Royal O'Connor of Westmead. That's the only thing I can tell you from that. So it just seemed as if you were getting approval from our peers. That's all it seemed to, to everybody, and everybody felt so good about that. And that was in 1983, and we've been going strong ever since. Pete has kingly presence. This imperial quality, together with his bravery and battle skills, has made him a natural leader. All the clan warriors look to him for leadership and offer him protection. This sentiment transcends any notion of staged reenactment. Some are impatient for the battle to commence. In the background, the warriors take up position. So these kind of heavy weapons, the glaives, are uh, devastating and uh, not a good idea unless you have at least decent hand protection. What weight are they? I think this is... I couldn't tell. Uh, maybe six, seven kilos. Um, and you throw them around like a, a the marshal's batons. You see it. it uh, well, the real difficulty is the armour. They'll bust the weight effectively. Like there's maybe a kilo in each of these gauntlets I'm wearing. The male pieces of my armour, maybe two, three kilos. So it's very tiring just to move your arm, never mind swinging mm. a weapon with it. And a lot of the, the work we work on is stamina work, where you start off just bashing away, kind of like this, no real aim. It's just to build up muscles and get it, build up your, your stamina. And after a while, a lot of it is realising when you can take a half-second break 
uh, get your breath back and then get stuck in again. One and question for you, lads. Mm -hmm. So what's your day job? I uh, work as a site reliability engineer for Google, so I keep the Google website running. Yourself? I work as IT project management, so <laughs> totally nothing related. Uh, you probably got the two most uh, technical people. Yeah, the, by, by the end of the week, basically, we want absolutely nothing to do with computers. Yeah. And uh, You can't get much further away than this, really. Well, you can, right? We have electricity here. Um, next yeah. weekend, we might be down in Craig and Owen Heritage Park, where there's no electricity, there's no running water, there's just... More no, primitive. Yeah. yeah, a lot more primitive, yeah. In the middle of a Cranog, doing 10th century stuff or Bronze Age stuff. Do your workmates know what you do? in your leisure time? Well, I just started a job, so I haven't told them yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually have run a number of courses in work on um, what I call medieval-style survival training for when civilizations turns to dust. Do you believe civilization is going to turn to dust? Every civilization to, turns to dust. It's just a matter of time. Without obvious signal, the battle suddenly begins. <laughs> Some say that crows see the wind. Alarmed, they scream with cries like broken glass. Spear and axe ring out as raw as guitar riffs. The battle is short-lived. Sharp and fierce, it soon runs out of breath. Tired arms lower blades like descending shafts of light, and in the aftermath, the castle shimmers in suspended air as if the clocks of the world have stopped. It's 35 years since I first met Pete. He's changed. The mantle of leadership has lent him gravitas. He protects his title from all pretenders. Yeah, it was, it was another pretty strange day that I was out for a spin. I had bought a bike on the Saturday evening and I hadn't got a chance to ride it, so I said I'd bring it for a spin on the Sunday. And I said I was going down to meet a friend of mine in Slane. And on the way down to Slane, I had remembered about the coffee shop being open up on Tara. And I just said, oh, we'll go for a cup of coffee. But when I got there, there was busloads of people. They were all Druids from all over England, Scotland, Wales, everywhere. But there was no Irish, Dublin Druids, no Irish Druids. Um, so I went up to see what the procedure was. And this chap had come from America and wanted to be made King of Ireland, King of the Celts of Ireland. And the whole procedure went on and I stood in the circle. As chief of the clan, I'm entitled to stand in the inside any circle. 
unless pushed out by a, by one of my peers. But there was nobody there to act as my peer. So I stood there. So I stood and said, what's going on? Oh, we're having a bit of a, a mock-up of this man being made king of the Celts, of the Irish. And I said, who is he? Oh, he's an American. His grandfather was Irish, the old additive again. And from that then, they were walking in with a pillow or a poopa, like a cushion type thing, with the crown on it. And I walked over and took the crown off it and said, this is not going to happen. Because nobody can claim to be king of Ireland. Not without the Irish knowing it, the Irish people knowing about it. And he tried to say that he, he had it out on RTE radio or he had it out on uh, television programmes that if anybody wanted to come along and see this man be made King of Ireland. But everybody I talked to said it, was, it never happened. So I stopped an American becoming King of Ireland. And that was just a day that I took to go for a spin. So it was pretty strange, you know, that it happened on the day that I decided to go for a spin. But all these things have happened to me, like, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty strange. Every time I go to a battle in Ireland, they, uh, they stop, like, all the warriors from the English groups form a line onto the battlefield and chant Erling Bra and here's the King of Ireland, calling himself the King of Ireland. I've never laid claim to that. I would never lay claim to that because I'm chief of the clan, which I'm quite happy about, and I get the recognition from that, like, you know what I mean? As you see, like, there's groups from Cork in there and there's a uh, couple from Clare. You know, so I'm in there, I train everybody and I get to skid out of it. I'm 62 years of age and I'm as fit as a fiddle, play football, do a bit of rock climbing, drive motorbikes and love life. That's me, Peter O'Connor. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.